Bibles. You're going to open up to Luke chapter 20. Last time to Luke 20, we're going to finish the chapter today. Now, I am doing a little bit of a, a change. You're going to see in your bulletin that we are supposed to cover two passages, right? The last bit of chapter 20 and the first four verses of chapter 21. Uh, and I realized uh, somewhere on Friday afternoon, late Friday afternoon, that, uh, that I needed to split it into two sermons instead of one. Otherwise, we'd be here for a really long time. Or it would have been parred down to very little in a weird way anyway. It was, it was being preached like a doubleheader anyway. Um, and so this is uh, the rare chance that I actually split something in two like this. Uh, so anyway, the actual title of today's sermon is Beware of the Scribes, right? Very original title. Next week it'll be equally creative, uh, The Widow's Might. And uh, so let's just go ahead and get into our passage. And, and just as a reminder, last week, the last thing we, we saw was this Jesus letting this question just linger out there, right? The, the question about uh, how, could David's, uh, how could David's son also be David's Lord? And, and so there's silence, and we don't know how much time's gone by. Uh, but that question, I, I believe, just lingers for a while. And at some point, Jesus speaks back up, and that's, that's where we're picking up here. So let's uh, follow along as I'm reading Luke 20 beginning in verse uh, 45, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come together to feast on your word, please enlighten our minds to understand and to receive your word today. Help us also to take what we learn and to put it into practice. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've said it before, let me say it again uh, as a way of summarizing this from the very start. It is possible, it is very possible to have a high view of God's Word and yet to dishonor God in the way that we actually live out what we learn in His Word. In other words, in, in the context of what we're seeing here, men and women, or when, when men and women live in religious hypocrisy, it, it leads to spiritual ruin. And Jesus, and only Jesus, can rescue us from a life of religious hypocrisy. And we want that. We want that so that we will become true worshipers of our holy God who is worthy of his worship. So now then, the scribes here, you need to understand who they are. They are these uh, Jewish leaders. Remember, they... they uh, these are the kind of the religious professionals. These are the guys that would have had uh, their PhDs in Hebrew scriptures from some prestigious store, uh, school, if you were to kind of put them into our modern setting. And, and, and to know them is, is this. You and I hear it and we think, oh yeah, they're, they're hypocritical and stuff. And we know that because we're reading what Jesus is saying here. But most of the people that knew them genuinely looked at them and thought, I want to be like these guys. They know God's word so well. They're super holy. They're just... They're so well respected. The godliness of the scribes was believed by most people. 
And yet here is Jesus. Jesus looks at, at them, and Jesus can look right through them. Jesus sees what's really going on in their hearts, and, and what Jesus sees going on in their hearts is not this, this piety that it looks like from the outside. What's going on in their hearts is, is this rottenness that is religious hypocrisy. And so Jesus, in this case, unprovoked, at least unprovoked by the scribes, actively speaks this warning to his disciples. But it's also this, this rebuke that's just thrown out there, right, uh, for everyone to hear. It's, it's like if I, if I were to say, you know, guys, I, I want you to beware of John Dunning. He, just, he likes to parade around in his, his Green Bay Packers gear, and he likes to be told how great Aaron Rodgers is. But, but take note. John, those like John are going to receive the greater condemnation. And you hear that, and, and somewhere, I don't even see where you are right now, John, but somewhere John's thinking, hey man, I'm, I'm right here. I, oh, up there. I, I can hear this. Uh, I'd prefer you not to maybe pull me aside and have this conversation. Uh, but it's all out there, and there's a reason Jesus does it, is because everyone needs to be warned of something, and we're going to get into the details of that in a little bit. Um, but that's kind of how the scribes would feel at this moment as, as Jesus is warning his disciples in this way that just publicly shames them amongst everyone, especially the people they're trying to impress. And, and so then Jesus lists off these six signs, these six ways of religious hypocrisy, and I, and I want us to look at all six of these. And we'll just start off with the first one because, yeah, that makes sense. Go in order, right? Uh, Jesus says, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Okay, so we used to have long robes in our worship service here at MPC. Uh, they're simple, black, Hogwarts-like Geneva robes, uh, nothing crazy or elaborate. Uh, and, and so you might be wondering when you hear this, oh, is this, is this passage the reason we don't wear robes anymore? We don't want to be like the scribes that Jesus is condemning for wearing those long robes? Uh, no, that's, that's not why we stopped the robes, right? Uh, initially, the reason we stopped wearing them was uh, not what you'd expect. The AC broke in the building we were meeting in, and it became crazy, crazy hot, so hot that after preaching, you had to go shower because uh, you're just sweating the whole time. I know that's the picture you want in your mind. Uh, but that was reality. And, and so during that time, we reevaluated the robes, you know. Is, is this something we, we want to do going forward, whether we're going to go back to that or not? Um, now, now, to say this, we, we like the robes for a few reasons. We like them because they were used in the temple worship. Uh, different style robes, but robes still. We, we like the robes because uh, robes have been a tradition of Christ's church for many, many centuries, and, and so they help us to visually connect to the, the history of Christ's church. This is not the first church ever, right? We have brothers and sisters all throughout history. Uh, we also like the robes because they minimize the fashion of those that are leading the service. I know you're all looking at what I'm wearing today now, uh, right? But it's, it's, what we're wearing doesn't become an issue. After the first few times, you're like, oh, it's just the robe again. I have no idea what he's wearing underneath there. Um, usually Astro socks, but you didn't see that. Now, we also like the robes because they helped emphasize the office of the elder and to de-emphasize the personality of, of those who are in the pulpit. Now, considering the regulative principle, just meaning this, that when we want to know how to worship God, we look to Scripture. We don't just make stuff up on the fly and think, oh, what will people generally like? Um, and, and, right, it, you have to at least know, is, is this right to do according to Scripture? And, and what you see in Scripture is there's freedom to wear robes or to not wear robes. You can do it either way and honor the Lord absolutely. Now, we chose not to return to the robes because we found 
they were becoming an unnecessary stumbling block to many people who, who came to worship. Now, Leslie Cassing's not here today. I think she's online. Um, Sam, make sure she's paying attention because she's about to get thrown under the bus here. Uh, when she first visited, this is seven years ago, pre-children, before like 15 accidents Sam had. Uh, but when they first visited seven years ago, she took one look at us in the robes and she thought, Roman Catholicism, nope, can't do it, can't do it. Uh, and she was ready to bolt. And she's not the only person who's had that response or had that response during that era to just bolt and never return. Now, her fiancé at the time, Sam, uh, helped her to look beyond the robes, to, to look at the content of the liturgy, to, to, to look at our commitment and our values to, to Scripture and the glory of God. And, and they ended up sticking around. And I think she's happy about that. Um, now, this is all probably more than you care to know about the history of our robes or lack of robes at this point. But like I said, the, the robes were an unnecessary wall or stumbling block to people who we, we hoped, who we have been praying for, that we'd have opportunity to share the gospel with, that we'd have opportunity to, uh, to, to, to aid and help and assist and shepherd in their sanctification. Uh, and, and, and so that was a big reason we didn't do it. Now, to be clear, we are absolutely fine offending people. That's not the problem. But if we're going to offend people... We want to offend them for biblical convictions, right? Offenses against uh, the culture or offenses against personal idols in our lives. Uh, not just a robe. That, that's just not worth it. Um, so then, back to the text. I know that's a bit of a rabbit trail. Uh, that's what happens when you split your sermon and have time to do that kind of thing. Uh, but anyway, for, furthermore, robes themselves are not Jesus' point here. Okay, that's not what he's railing against here. Uh, re- remember the time period. At this time period, nobody wore leggings, nobody wore jeans, nobody wore jeggings or overalls or sweatpants or weird things like that, no jams. Uh, They wore robes. Jesus himself, as he's saying this, is wearing a robe. The apostles wore robes. Everyone, everyone and their grandma and their grandpa and their grandma's next door neighbor, they wore robes. This is what they wore. But the scribes wore these really fancy robes in the temple as part of the worship and it was just this elaborate setup and and even that was okay but because they love honor and prestige some of them would take these robes and just keep wearing them and they go out into the marketplace and and that way everyone would know oh that's one of the scribes right um it's kind of like uh letter jackets in high school you you wear it right and people would know they'd look at your letter in the back and they'd be like oh okay you played soccer or wrestling or whatever it might be uh, in Laura's case, she actually lettered in newspaper or origami or something like that. I can't remember always. Uh, one of those things that sounds more like a hobby, but she, everyone in her school would have known what it was because it was on her letter jacket. Now, we wear things around so that people know who we are. Uh, again, thinking back to high school days, I believe they still do it today, the teams would wear their jerseys to, uh, on, the, on game day, and so everyone knew, oh, that's a football player, right? We had uh, cheerleader and band and dancers, whatever they were wearing, and you, you knew it. It was a way of just showing what they, what they did. It became this identity in some regards. Now, it, it's one thing to, to do that in a high school, but can you imagine if, if LeBron James, right, you're at the grocery store, and in comes LeBron James wearing his whole uniform, Shorts, jersey, everything uh, in there just to make sure everyone knows, oh, that's, that's LeBron James. That, that's what the scribes are doing. They're making sure that everyone knows who they are and how prestigious they are. And, and so then the scribes are wearing these, these ostentatious robes 
Uh, and it's a way of virtue signaling, right? They, they wore them in public in the hopes that, that people would look at them and just say, wow, that's a scribe. That, that's a man who, who knows God's word. That's a man who is uh, morally upright. That is a, a righteous person. Now, I, I've given some general examples, but truly the most obvious modern-day example of this, if we're going to be honest, is, is Roman Catholic popes and cardinals. Uh, it's Reformed people. Our whole history is ripping on Catholics, so uh, I apologize if you're Catholic. Glad you're here. Uh, but you probably need to know this kind of thing. Uh, going out in public, right? You see the Pope. Uh, sometimes he's got the simple white robe, but often they go out in these, these, these certain settings with all these layers and layers of luxurious robes and, and the precious papal ring, uh, that precious thing. Uh, and, and the big old fancy hat that makes sure nobody can miss who he is, and the staff, uh, and all that stuff that just screams, I am important, I'm holy, look at me. And, and the truth is, he's not holy. He, he needs Jesus just like you and I need Jesus, just like the rest of humanity needs Jesus. Now, anyway, I, I, I know you're not going to wear a robe around town, but for the sake of, of personal pride, do, do you ever... Do you ever make sure someone knows something about you, um, right? Like, I want to make sure I throw out my, the way I, I, I practice the Sabbath just so they know just how holy I am. Or, or, or maybe that you don't drink or whatever thing it is that you've kind of held up and think is a, a mark of a virtuous person and, and just want to make sure people know this. That, that's what Jesus is, is getting here. And, and that's the reason that these scribes are wearing these fancy robes all out and about, now, the second sign that Jesus lists for religious hypocrisy is that they loved greetings in the marketplace. And I know, that doesn't sound so bad. Greetings, I mean, hi, hi. Uh, that's not what we're picturing here. What, what, what they love are these greetings that were these praises of them in the marketplace, right? They're, they're parading around in these fancy robes while they're buying bread and mutton or whatever. Uh, and, and they just love to be praised by people. They want to hear good morning, most esteemed and honorable Jedediah. They, they want to hear something like that. Now the issue isn't that people showing them respect. It's good to show respect. First uh, Peter 2.17 tells us, honor everyone. Romans 13.7, we're, we're to give respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. It's good for us to do that. The, the issue is not the showing of respect or even the receiving of respect. The, the issue is that the, in the scribe's heart, they are yearning. That's what they want. They want the praise of others um, and, and particularly praise for the image that they have projected of themselves. Not reality, but just what they have convinced people they are. Um, where I most vividly saw this in my life, and I know I've shared part of this story somewhere in the past, uh, but when I was a seminary student in Dallas, Texas, I would sometimes go study in Starbucks. Free Wi-Fi back in the day was quite a significant thing when you were on dial-up at home. Um, and so I was always studying in this, I was studying in this, this, this uh, Starbucks, and in walks this guy, T.D. Jakes. Now, if you don't know that name, good for you. Uh, carry on in the bliss that you have. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll let you know, he is a well-known uh, health, wealth, prosperity preacher. It's this idea, this false idea that if you give money to God through his ministry, then God will make sure you have lots of money and, and bless you financially in that way. It, it tends to prey on the poorest people and make one person rich, the pastor. Um, 
So T.D. Jakes is just this massive television personality on his show. Uh, he pastors a large church, 17,000 people a week. Uh, and anyway, in he walks wearing this luxurious suit, the kind that has layers. Uh, it's got the little pocket thing sticking out here. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's the kind of suit that just radiates wealth. It's hard to put that into words, but you know it when you see it. Now, everyone in there is staring at him, and some of the people are saying, good morning, Reverend Jakes, or what an honor it is to meet you, Reverend Jakes. And, and he's getting these greetings. Uh, some people wanted his autograph. And, and then he gets to the counter, and he's got his assistant with him, and he just looks at it. His assistant orders his coffee for him. His assistant pays for it, uh, which, which begins to tell me there's no reason to come in here at all. You weren't even ordering a coffee uh, for yourself. Now, after a few conversations with, with people, he leaves, and, and as he walks out the door, making his way to this town car through just pouring rain at the moment, uh, there, there is his assistant holding an umbrella over T.D. Jakes, who has nothing in his hands, no reason he can't do this himself, uh, while the assistant just gets soaked walking through it, and, and it just made me sick to see, because here's a guy that, that preaches sacrifice and humility. Here's a guy that's calling people to follow Jesus, and yet here he is, and he's not even hiding it. Here he is just living this life uh, like a self-centered king of the universe is the way he he seems to look when you look at this way. And in passages like ours today, if if you step back and aren't angry at a guy like T.D. Jakes in this moment, it's just heartbreaking. Because when you consider a guy like him, right, he knows the gospel. He knows the scriptures, he knows better than this, but but he's living this life of outright religious hypocrisy, and and without gospel change, things are not going to end well for him. That's what we see at the end of this passage, and we'll come back to that in a bit. Um, So the third sign of hypocrisy Jesus gives is loving the best seats in the synagogues. In other words, they, they want to be seen as important in church. That was the whole point. You sit in the important chairs, um, and, and people would know that. Now, in this days, the important chairs were up in the very front. I know today everyone tries to get as far back as they can. Um, I don't fully understand that, right? This row has been empty now for since we ever moved into it. I don't know if anyone's ever sat in it ever. Uh, these would have been the seats of honor back in the day. Uh, now they're like the, you know, these are the lowly seats, right? You know, sitting next to Joshua is the lowliest place in this whole building. No offense, Joshua. Um, now, at the heart, what they want is, is to see, people to see that they are better than other people. I have this seat because clearly I am honorable. It's the honorable seat. Uh, and for us, right, it's, it's, it's not really about the seat, right? At least in churches, it's not about the seats of honor. And, and praise the Lord. But, you know, we, we don't have that. But we, but we may still want people to see us as, as, as something, right? Either holy in some way, or we want people to see us as, uh, you know, theologically astute. That guy knows his stuff. I, I know in my, my seminary days, I, I can remember sitting in church and reading all this stuff and learning all this stuff, and somehow I wanted people to know how much I knew. And, and so after the service, I would jump at any chance possible to correct or disagree with the, 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 whoever is preaching that day, the pastor, whatever he said in his sermon, right? I'd show up, you know, having just read Calvin the day before. It's fresh in my mind, but he hadn't read it in years probably. Um, and I'd say something like, you, you know, Calvin would disagree with blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and, you know, he says so in chapter 6. And I'm a genius because I just read this uh, by chance. Oh, right? And, and so there's just this way. I want to make sure they know that I'm, I'm sharp, right? Or, or I'd pridely ne- pridefully never admit when someone would use some big theological word and I have no clue what it meant, right? Someone asked, 
So, so what do you think of uh, preterism? Uh, that's, I think it's, it's interesting. What do, you, what do you think of preterism, right? And then try to discern what in the world is preterism. Um, I don't know. You can go Google that later. Bottom line is, is Jesus is condemning them for arrogantly working to be seen as important in church. Right? All this knowledge, all these positions is just so people think that they're great. Now the first, fourth behavior that Jesus calls them out for is loving the places of honor at feast. Uh, this is pretty much the one before, but, but now it's made its way out of the doors of the, uh, the temple and into the wider culture. I just want everyone to see me as prestigious. Uh, Jesus actually deals with this back in Luke 14. You remember the wedding feast and don't take the fancy seats. Uh, let them be given to you. Anyway, uh, they, they want to be viewed as virtuous and prestigious in society as well as the church. Now, the fifth thing Jesus condemns them for is devouring widows' houses. What a picture that is, right? Just what exactly this means is, is unknown, but most likely it's something like uh, they would volunteer to be the executors of the widows' estates only to then financially take advantage of these widows. And this is terrible. Uh, this is, as the British would say, is ghastly, right? As, and, and the reason is, is that widows were the most vulnerable members of society because they had no means of, of making income at this time. And, and other than the charity of others, what, whatever existed in their, from their late husband's estates, that's where they were able to get financial care, or financial, to like care for themselves, and in fact, they're so vulnerable that this is the reason that Isaiah 117 instructs God's people to plead the widow's cause. This is why James 127 instructs Christians to visit widows in their affliction. There is this care for these people who need to be cared for. And yet here is Jesus, right? And he's condemning them because they have failed to love and care for widows. In fact, they've done the opposite. They have devoured what little the widows have. And so then the sixth and last thing that Jesus condemns is the, is the scribes' long prayers. And I know some of you are thinking, amen, long prayers are the worst. I absolutely disagree with you on that except for one situation, right? When you sit down at a meal to eat and you have hot food in front of you, do not have your quiet time at the dinner table while the food you are thankful for just becomes cold, um, But right? But even that's not what Jesus is really dealing with here. Je Jesus is concerned with why these scribes are doing these long prayers. What's, what's going on behind it? And Jesus knows their hearts, and so he knows that they're showing off. Look how holy I am with my, my, my long, wordy prayers. And, and, and that's what their whole goal is in these long prayers. And the real issue is, is that they're just empty words. Right here are the scribes performing a prayer for an audience of Jews instead of praying a genuine prayer to God. In case you're, you're wondering, right, the longest prayer in our service is the pastoral prayer. Um, they would have considered our pastoral prayer quite short compared to what they're, they're getting at here. And I, I know they, they might seem long to you, some of you, but that's because you've been raised on Sesame Street and social media. Uh, that's the kind of attention spans we have at this point, uh, right? A little better than a goldfish maybe. Now, to, to be fair though, our pastoral prayers absolutely could fall into this condemnation. There, there is potential there for it, uh, this sort of hypocrisy, because you know, I think you know, we mentioned it before, uh, we write them ahead of time. 
Now, and we do that in, intentionally, not because we're afraid to pray off the cuff. We do that all the time as well, too. But we do it so that we can be thoughtful in the way that we are praying for this congregation, for our covenant community, for our nation. Uh, and, but writing them ahead of time means that we could easily stand up here and just, just read it, completely disconnected from it, or read it with the only goal of you being impressed with how we, how we are praying. And, and, and that's why we have to be intentional. We have to come to the pastoral prayer week after week and, and approach it for what it truly is, which is an elder over this congregation called by God, bringing a prayer on behalf of this congregation and for this covenant family to God who is holy and who hears it. To God who graciously asked his people, his children, to bring words of praise and request to him. Um, anyway, there, there is a place for long prayers. And in fact, if you're really wondering about it, you think about who's saying this, it's, it's Jesus. If anyone understood long prayers, it's, it's him. He, he would spend an entire night in prayer. But his prayers were not performing for anyone, and his goal was never to impress others, but simply to commune deeply, to commune intimately with his Father. That's the goal of his prayer. And so then, what, what are we to do with the Lord's condemning of hypocrisy in the scribes, right? These six areas, we see it. What do we do with this, this warning? I think the first thing we do is this. We, we just, we understand. And this is what we understand. We understand that Jesus' warning isn't just beware of the scribes, right? Like avoid those people and don't trust those people and let's, let's all condemn those people. But, but it's also beware of being like the scribes. Don't, don't you, my disciples, also be like them. Beware of that. And, and let's be honest, this, this sort of seeking the praise of others is tempting to us. And why do you think it's appealing to us? It is. You know, if, if we could be real with ourselves, we, we'd confess it is tempting because it feels good. It feels good when people notice how well you know the scriptures, even if it's not accurate, right? It feels good when people notice, oh, you, you serve your church like crazy all the time. We, we want to hear people say things like, Oh, you, you serve so much and always with so much joy. I'm just so impressed with you. Or, or we want to hear, oh, you sing so beautifully. Or you're always helping others out. How, how do you find the time? We want to hear these things. We want to hear, isn't, isn't she just the most godly mother? Isn't he the most humble servant you've ever known? We, we want to hear those things because every one of us is, we're more like these scribes than we care to admit. We don't have the robes, but we have the same heart problem. We might. We do at times. We, 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 like them, find ourselves placing our identity not in God's love for us, but in other people's opinion of us. Recently, I had a conversation with a brother in Christ who confessed a habitual sin that he is frustratedly battling against, but consistently battling against, and his confession was truly refreshing because so many, even in the church today, keep these battles private. And in the conversation, he put in the words what so many feel. He, he said, I hate to share this because honestly, pridefully, I want people to continue to think of me as a good, godly person. Right? That's the wall between getting support in the community and not is this pride that just... Seek, like, 
we battle against, right? That's, that's the thing long before even the next thing, right? It's pride at the heart. Now, now listen, we, we cannot let habitual sin dwell safely behind secure walls in our lives. We must go Jericho on those walls by, by letting go of hypocritical pride and seeking companions in the, in the sanctifying battle against sin. But because we, and, and this is the reason, right? Because we want to honor God even more than we want to appear honorable to others. That's true, right? We, we want to honor God more than we want to appear honorable to others. And so like I, I said before, your, your first step is, is just confessing any hypocrisy in your life, confessing it to God. Just lay yourself bare before the Lord because he already knows it anyway. He does. Philip Ryken says of this passage, he says, Jesus' all-seeing eye penetrated their outward religiosity to see their inward insincerity. And so, so let me ask you, when the Lord looks at you, when, when he penetrates the, the exterior to see down to your heart, what does the Lord see in your heart? What's he see? Well, there's one more bit of focus here, that last line in the whole passage. As I've already stated, you, you and I can be an awful lot like the scribe, seeking to appear holy even when it's not true who we truly are, even who we're truly seeking to be, right? And the most disturbing, the most terrifying that should bother you uh, aspect of this realization is what Jesus says there in verse 47. He says, they, the scribes, he's saying they, religious hypocrites, right, will receive the greater condemnation. Greater condemnation. J.C. Ryle observes here that no sin seems to be regarded by Christ as more sinful than hypocrisy. None certainly drew forth from his lips such frequent, strong, and withering condemnation during the whole course of his ministry. Listen, I know Jesus' words here sound harsh to us. This, This is not just a condemnation of the scribes, though. It's also a loving warning, a loving warning to the scribes and a loving warning to all of his disciples, including you and I. And, and warnings are good because when, when warned, we can still change our ways. It's not too late when you're being warned. And so listen, death and eternity will go bad for those who want nothing to do with Jesus. It is going to go terrible, right? For those who will not come to God, Christ by grace through faith for salvation. But among those who... Uh, those uh, it, But among those, meaning those who will not come to Christ, it is going to be even worse for those who are hypocritical, uh, who hypocritically pretend to be godly when they know they aren't, when they're not even trying to. You ever hear someone say, "I, I believe there is a special place in hell for Hitler or for child molesters? I've heard it from many, many people in my life. There, there is little in Scripture that gives weight to that particular statement, but we do see in passages like the one before us that there are degrees of condemnation in hell. Now, I'd love to explain what that looks like in detail, but I don't know because God didn't reveal what that detail looks like. Uh, I don't know, but I can tell you this much. It doesn't sound good, right? If eternal hell is condemnation and and there is a greater condemnation, I don't know what that looks like, but it's not good. Uh, The bottom line here, though, and and I want you to see this, is that either your sins have been accounted for by Jesus upon the cross, gone, or you yourself will have to give account for the sins 
uh, for your sins, and among those who must give account for their, their sins, those who live as religious hypocrites will face a harsher condemnation. You see, outward religion and the favorable opinions of others will save not a single soul, not one, in the history of the world. And yet, there is good news for us. And this is the good news. Jesus is a savior for hypocrites who come to him and receive forgiveness and who receive new hearts and who will then long not just to look godly and appear to be close to God, but those who, because of this new heart, because of this transformation, because of what Jesus has done, will truly desire to seek and to live godly and to actually grow close to the Lord. Jesus is a savior of hypocrites that come to him. While here we learn there is greater condemnation for religious hypocrites, let me remind you that in Romans 8.1 we, we are told this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so let us before the Lord and before others be whoever we are or are not. Let us not pretend you won't fool the Lord even if you fool everyone else. So if we're living as sinners, let us confess that and then seek the grace of the Lord. If we are living as lukewarm or apathetic, professing Christians, let us ask our gracious God to forgive us and through the Holy Spirit give us a genuine love for God and for His Word. Brothers, sisters, no matter how weak our resolve, let us offer to God what is genuine within our hearts and then to seek the Lord for whatever changes need to, need to occur. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, may we not be like the scribes. May we not be merely externally religious. May we not care how holy others think we are. Instead, we ask for wholehearted commitments that we might find rest in you, that we might find joy in walking in your ways, that we might find satisfaction in the only place it can be found, in Christ. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.